friends, mental health champions, brothers and sisters in recovery, welcome to 40,000 Steps Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Heimerman, and I am not a licensed healthcare professional, not a doctor, not a counselor, not a psychologist. I am a guy with 1,218 days of sobriety, and I'm a guy with the gumption to put his story out there. I do, however, have a psychologist on this episode of the podcast. It is Dr. Charlotte Markey. Not only is she a psychologist, she is the author of a couple of brilliant books that really resonate with me as a parent there's the body image book for girls and there's being you the body image book for boys not only does charlotte talk about her work she opens up a bit about her personal story and i'm so grateful for that and i'm grateful to all of you for being here i'm looking out the window and it is a beautiful day for us to get our forty thousand steps in so let's get it You know how many times I recorded and re-recorded that? That lyric, that Alanis Morissette lyric from my childhood? Six? Seven? Because I wanted to get it perfect. Well, what's behind this word perfect? It's, it's such a fallacy. And whether we're talking about body image, whether we're talking about the sound in this studio, which you've heard me agonize over <laughs> over the past couple of episodes, Perfect is what's holding us back from being the fullest version of ourselves. For those who aren't up to speed on what's been going on in my life, here's the latest. Uh, earlier this year, my wife and I decided that we we're going to separate and that we we're going to get a divorce. We also were in the process of moving from Northern Illinois up to the Milwaukee area. So a lot of things happened. And I shut down the podcast for a little while. And upon arriving here in, uh, in Milwaukee, in the Milwaukee area, I found this big, beautiful, vibrant recovery community. And so I made up my mind. I was like the first month, two months, however long it is, I'm going to exclusively interview people from Milwaukee. It's going to be so cool and so smart, so clever. It's going to be perfect. Well, a guest couldn't make the interview because life happens and it almost crushed me because I wanted it to be perfect. Well, I have had this interview with Dr. Charlotte Markey sitting in the hopper since, since back in April or May or something like that, because before I could publish it, things happened and I put the podcast on pause. So rather than continuing to try to force this Milwaukee exclusive thing. It was like this, this conversation about body images is as timely as ever. This is a great conversation. So I went back into the conversation to listen to it so I could, you know, record this, this intro. And 
I, I immediately wanted to go into tinkering mode. I wanted to tweak things and I wanted to remove the references to my wife. And, but, but I had to stop myself and be like, no, like the conversation exists from that time and place. She's still my wife. Why, why tinker? Why try to make it perfect? So at least in this one instance, I have stopped myself. And hopefully as I get better at this, hopefully I'm modeling good stuff for my kids because our girls are nine. They're like knocking at the door of adolescence, knocking at the door of puberty. <laughs> you know, I, I wish to have girls and, and I got them and I'm, and I'm so grateful for that. But here we are, folks, their bodies are about to change significantly. And so we're, we're having those conversations uh, and I'm trying to remain engaged with them. And I'm, and I'm trying to trying to make sure that all of us are ready for what we're about to go through. And I'm so grateful for these books from Dr. Charlotte Marquis. There's a book for boys, which, which, which is the newer of the two and definitely resonates with me. But the body image book for girls is brilliant. The illustrations are beautiful. The knowledge is rich and the presentation is awesome. There's humor in there. My kids actually look forward to reading it with me. This book has provided me the opportunity to be engaged with my kids in these conversations which to me is a through line. Like there are certain things I'm not going to be able to control as the girls go out into the world and they're exposed to other opinions and language and all these ads that we're bombarded with. This book has given me the chance to engage with them, to ask them questions. And that's another thing that this conversation with Dr. Markey drove home is to provide them with space, to, to listen closely to ask them questions. And then when they ask me questions, to, to, to listen again, to listen before I answer. And think before we speak is, is within there. And you know, we talk about it in our conversation as it pertains to body image stuff and body shaming. You know, we, we sometimes say stuff that, you know, we don't even mean it the way that we say it. And Think about all of those little things that people have said to us throughout the years that have stuck with us that we haven't forgotten. I'm going to share an example that when I was in my early 20s, I was playing basketball with my best friend, Jay, and took my shirt off and he made a comment about my man boobs and said, maybe if I did some push-ups that, that I wouldn't have them. That sticks with me to this day. And you know what? It doesn't bother me anymore, but I still vividly remember exactly where we are. I remember what the weather was like. I remember it all because those words cut so deeply. And I can't imagine the number of times that I've said them about somebody else. So one of the takeaways from this conversation is that we need to be really careful with the language that we use. And I'm going to be very careful with, with the words that I use as I talk to my kids about this stuff. All right, before we launch into our conversation, I need to share a few words about a sponsor of the podcast that I absolutely love. It's Mindful Marathon. I say it on the podcast a lot, exercise is medicine. Well, my favorite pediatrician and running coach, Michelle Quirk, is helping countless people get healthy and realize their potential through her business, Mindful Marathon. Maybe you're looking to run a mile without stopping, or maybe you wanna train for a 5K or an ultra marathon. Maybe you're a former track star who hasn't laced them up in years. 
Michelle meets her clients where they are and she gets results. She does so by building individualized training plans. She'll be with you every step of the way with regular calls and support. Go to mindful-marathon.com and download Michelle's free workshop or her Couch to Confidence four-week walk plan. Every runner starts from somewhere, even if that mile is zero. Michelle's going to meet you there, she's going to root for you, and Michelle's going to be there to celebrate with you at the finish line. So go to mindful-marathon.com and start your journey today. All right, you folks ready to learn, ready to do a little bit of laughing? Are you ready to maybe maybe cry a little bit as you hear about Dr. Charlotte Marquis' story? Because it's, it's very personal. Well, I hope you're here for it. This is my conversation with who I now consider a dear, dear friend, Dr. Charlotte Marquis. Thank you to you and your team for sending me those wonderful books in advance. Oh, I'm glad you got them. I don't know how much everybody's clued you in, but uh, my wife and I, we have two, oh, of course, twin eight-year-old daughters. Uh huh. So obviously the, uh, the body image book for girls, uh, we, we're, we're going through that as of right you're, now. You're right on the brink of all the fun. Well, and I was going to say, you know, I, I don't know if it's ever really spelled out in the books and such, but I mean, what is sort of for your intention and, you know, the intention of, of the books and everything that you've studied and learned and what you preach, like what is the age appropriate time to start talking about this stuff? Early and often. Yeah. Uh. I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I operate under the assumption that like my children kind of know my story warts and all between you know, the mental illness I've battled all my life, my, my recovery from alcoholism. So we're a very warts and all kind of family that we have yeah. those discussions, but, but there is, is there such thing as like too much too soon? I mean, I don't really think so. I think that keeping things age appropriate in a way, just so that kids like understand what you're talking about can be important. But I think that there's things we can all do as parents and the way we communicate with our kids from a really young age. So it's just a matter of, to a certain extent, what works for your family, I guess, you know, I mean, I would, I would have all families be starting some version of, you know, sex ed by the time their kids were like four, but that's just, that's just too weird for a lot of people. So I do appreciate that. I mean, that's great. Boy, we have to a certain extent, um, you know, at the risk of like <laughs> violating the privacy of my own child. I'm going to, we had a, I, I don't want to refer to it as a scare, a surprise last summer when we thought that one of our eight year olds had her period already. Wow. Yeah. And it happened suddenly. Yeah. We were launching into the, oh my gosh, we already have to have these conversations. We were stunned by it. It turned out that it was just a one-off. But it was like, you uh -huh. know, we were ripping off the Band-Aid and it's like, yeah, why, why, why not get ahead of this thing, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's tricky, right? You don't want, you don't want to make kids feel afraid of things that are distant and uncontrollable. And yet I think conversation, making them feel comfortable, making them feel like this is just a normal part of life and we're here to help you is really important. And so there's lots of little ways we can do that. We don't have to... I always advise against like, you know, a lot of sit down lecture type conversations because 
especially in the teenage years, um, I think, you know, no one likes that, right? Kids don't want to be lectured by their parents. And we don't want to prepare for that and do that, right? That just feels awkward and awful to us also. So if we can try to be more spontaneous and, you know, work it in kind of in a more regular way, you're watching a TV show, you hear about a piece of news you want to talk about, you know, I mean, my kids are teenagers, so we've done, I think, all of this, but I still worry that it doesn't always sink in mm -hmm. because it's like on the other extreme where I've tried to talk about it so much, too much, that they kind of just tune me out like, oh, there's mom again. She's like, oh. I think there's also a case to be made that at this point in our children's lives, they love and trust us and actually want to be around us. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and that, that doesn't last. <laughs> exactly. So it's time to hit the iron while it's hot, right? Totally. Totally. And I mean, you know, in my house this week, everything going on in the news is a good entree to talk about contraception, which is, you know, something that may or may not become relevant yeah. to my kids in the not so distant future. So, you know, I can't predict that, but we want them to be prepared and understand. And, you know, so I, you know, I like to try to talk about current events and news a little bit anyways, especially because kids get it now on TikTok. So um, <laughs> you have to you know, do a little correcting occasionally yeah. because of that. Yeah, yeah. TikTok scares the scares the bejesus out of me. Um, social media in general, uh, you know, isn't my favorite thing, and I'm sure that we're going to get into that. But the TikTok stuff is downright scary. Tried it, ran away from it. Uh, have you seen Turning Red yet? The the children's flick. I have not. I'm really out of touch with some of like younger kid popular culture right now. I sure, because. I mean, it, it's about, you know, the, the girl, I think she's like 11 or 12 and, you know, she gets her period for the first time and it manifests in her like turning into this giant red panda. Right, right. And, and I, you know, I read so much about what a great opportunity to talk about this stuff, but I was kind of disappointed that like, it was just like, it just sort of brushed it. It was like, it was sort of a taking off point, but it, 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 the, the film by and large was really just entertaining. I mean, obviously we want a spoon of a spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down, mm -hmm. but like the movie was pitched to me as this like revelation and great opportunity it was like, they kind of mentioned it, but not really. So what, what led you to what you do to your line of work, to writing these books? How did you go down this path? So I'm a professor of psychology. I've been at Rutgers university for 20 years and I started studying psychology in graduate school largely because of my interest in body image and eating behaviors. Um, I was a dancer growing up so that I think had a big impact in that from you know the age of five there was a lot of emphasis placed on how your body looks and how thin you are and you know that just in addition to being a girl and then a woman in, in our culture, I think, um, made these issues just feel really salient to me and just really interesting. I think that studying psychology was a way of kind of sorting it out for myself in some ways in my 20s. Mm -hmm. And I've done, you know, nearly, you know, published nearly 100 studies at this point in terms of like scholarly research, but it's probably really my teaching and talking with 
other people who are now in their teens and 20s, late teens and 20s, and getting this sense that there's a lot that now I understand that they don't or the general public doesn't still. Mm-hmm. And really wanting to get better at finding ways to communicate to public audiences. And it's just so important to me that especially young people, but really all people have good scientific and evidence-based information. Yeah. Well, I love me a good origin story. So I appreciate you mentioning that like as a dancer, you, that you're in that culture at age five. Uh, there's somebody who's going to be coming on the podcast soon. Uh, uh, Nancy Thies Marshall, who was an Olympian, and she started a mental health task force uh, for USA Gymnastics in the 90s. And something that I saw her uh, that I read that she had said in a New York Times article was that one of her coaches had called her a fat pig at one point. And she can still remember what that room smelled like. Yeah. When she heard that, because, you know, the more we're learning about uh, processing of memories when it comes to like taste and smells, it's it's in the hippocampus where those memories are formed. I mean, do you, do you remember, uh, does, does that resonate with you in terms of some of your brushes with that sort of stuff when you were a dancer as a kid? Yeah. And I, I know it probably just sounds a little cliche because a lot of girls want to be dancers growing up, I think, especially of, of my generation. Um, and, and yet I was very serious about it. I was a very serious child. I'm probably still sort of a serious adult. And um, in fourth grade, I actually, I had been taking classes at San Francisco Ballet, which is where I lived. And so I auditioned in fourth grade to be a member of the company, which was sort of felt like the next step. And it was kind of, you know, like you would see in a movie or something. There's like a group of dancers and you do your routines and they ask you to do certain things. And there's like a panel of like, judges essentially watching you. And then after that, they call you in one at a time to let you know how you did. And so, you know, fourth grade version of me was called in and was told like, listen, your skill is fine, but you just don't have a dancer's body. Mm -hmm. You're never really going to be a dancer. And, you know, I don't, remember the smells. I don't remember a lot. I remember that exact wording though. And, you know, I also remember feeling no like outlet or like no idea. Like, then what do I do with this? Yeah. Right. You know, like there was, it it was just sort of a different time, I think, in terms of how we thought about eating body image and mental health. And there was no follow-up conversation for me, you know, Mm -hmm. like there was no parent figure or anyone who said like, actually, you're totally fine the way you are. (laughs) That's bullshit. Um, You know, so it was really, I I kept dancing for a number of years, but it was with this understanding that there was kind of something wrong with me. And I think that that's not an unfamiliar experience, actually. You, you You were like 10. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I really hadn't gone through puberty. Yeah. And... You know, I think that's specific, it's meaningful to me, but I think a lot of people get a message similar to that at some point in their lives. Mm-hmm. And I hear from young people all the time where a 
a pediatrician even will say to them, like, you know, when they're eight, that they need to lose weight or, um, you know, a parent or a, a grandparent with nothing but actually affection mm-hmm. says to them that they're chubby or, uh, you know, whatever. Sometimes there are cultural terms even that mm-hmm. are used. And so I think that a lot of people have these moments where they internalize this message of there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And and so how do we undo that? Right. How do we counter that message? And then, of course, there's just a ton of marketing that keeps sending you that message. Right. Because there's so many products to buy if you want to fix yourself. I mean, the data bears out. And it's very much on my radar uh, that, I mean, childhood obesity is a serious issue that we're facing. So what, what's interesting to me is like when you say that uh, telling a child that something is wrong with them, I think that puts the onus, it assigns like a moral value to the child, which is brutal and wrong. Mm-hmm. So in terms of, I don't, I don't know though, if I kind of reframe this, I'm like, okay, well, we need to correct the behavior, right? Because the fact is, if we're in good shape, or even like, it, it, the, the better shape we're in, the more we're fully, fully living our life, the better our brains are working, you know, the right. attachments of mental health to physical health. Mm-hmm. So, how, so how do we go about addressing childhood obesity in a productive and healthy way? Like me, here, let's do a little role play. I'm the pediatrician. What? what <laughs> What do I say to mom or dad? What do I say to to ten year old uh, to ten year old Charlotte? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So yeah. let me do my best. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I do. Yeah, let me do my best. But if it's a little convoluted, keep me keep me on track. So you know, I think there are two underlying assumptions that we work with all the time culturally mm-hmm. that are really not accurate. And the first one is that our bodies are infinitely malleable, that we can control our weight and that we should, Mm -hmm. and that other parts of us are, you know, controllable in the physical sense. And, and we just have too much genetic research at this point to suggest that that's probably not really true, Mm -hmm. right? That, you know, some of us are going to be tall. Some of us are going to be short. Some of us are going to be larger. Some of us are going to be smaller. Some of us are going to have particular shapes. Some of us are going to be more muscular. Um, I I would never go as far as to say, like, we have no control. Of course, we have some control over our health and we all engage in behaviors that affect our health. Um, But, you know, this idea that, like you say, it's like up to 10 year old, whoever, or even their parents to like control this thing, this big, huge aspect of our being, which is, you know, our body size or shape. is, is really not how this works or not how it should work. Um, then the other issue is we have a misconception that weight and health are related in this neat linear fashion. Mm, right. That is that as we get heavier, we get less healthy. Mm-hmm. And the data, data really don't bear that out very well at this point. Interesting. So we know, for example, people who fall into what would be considered the medical category of overweight um, seem to have fewer health problems than underweight people. Mm -hmm. And so 
you know, but we don't criticize people for being underweight ever. Yeah, we don't right. try to control their weight. We just are like happy about those people. We we kind of elevate them in many contexts. Yeah, and this and this is where BMI to me is like it's the ultimate like four letter word, the body mass index in terms yeah. of saying you are this height, you are this weight. So I'm going to deduce from that whether or not you are healthy. <laughs> like yeah. ho hopefully we're getting away from that and I think as a as a healthcare society, I th I think that we are. I think progress has been made. But you, I I think you you and I are on the same page in this that or let, let me just interject this here that like for me with sobriety, what, what made sobriety easy for me and what made it enjoyable was that rather than like addressing the problem, the problem, the problem, running away from the problem, it was a matter of, okay, what do I want out of life? What am I running toward? So I think that that's kind of the messaging. I don't know. I'm making assumptions, but as the pediatrician, if I'm flipping the right. role playing, it's like, I want to talk about what you want out of life, right? Mm -hmm. Like what your passions are. I think that's largely true. And, and I think too, we can change behaviors. Mm -hmm. So we can, I mean, I would like there to be probably more registered dietitians around and partnering with, with more providers to help in terms of some education, but I'm not actually completely convinced that people don't think that the salad is healthier than the fries. Right. when they're at a restaurant. So I'm not sure that like it's all about knowledge or education at all. A lot of it has to do with access, with socioeconomic status, with access to healthcare even. So, you know, these are deep, deep sociological um, and political, unfortunately, issues that I don't know that we address very well at all. So you know, then to say like, oh, you're the parent of this child. It's like, you've done something wrong. Well, I mean, that's really an oversimplification of, of an entire set of issues, potentially ranging from whatever you're working with genetically to whether or not you can afford yeah. um, certain kinds of foods or certain kinds of medical care, or, you know, to participate even in, in youth sports. I'm sure you've, you've, probably seen some of this already with eight-year-olds that it starts to get really expensive if you want your kids to engage in different activities. I was just shocked at the price tag sometimes and, and what that could mean for my family when there was a kid who had a real passion or desire, you know, you're like, oh, well, I guess we yeah, yeah. go on vacation ever again. <laughs> yeah. For us right now, it's skateboarding. Our girls are so into skateboarding and we did like the helmet and the pads. We cough up the 20 or 30 bucks every week for them to do, for them to go and skateboard. And now it's like, well, we got to get them into a board too. Yeah, it, 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 it is a lot. And um, it, it, to your point before, like if, if we, uh, if in talking with parents, if we shame them, if we assign, you know, moral value to what they're doing. I mean, what does shame do to the vast majority of people? For me, if I'm shamed, oftentimes I don't, I don't like pull up my bootstrap. No, no, I, I give up. Right. I mean, shame makes people cower and walk away. Yeah. Right. I mean, shame is not motivating and, and there seems to be a myth and it, and it feels a little too pervasive in, in medicine and medical care in particular that like, you know, people need to be, you know, tough loved into healthy behaviors. Right. And we have no data to support that that's going to be effective. We have a lot of data to suggest that people need 
to be supported. They need resources. They need to feel like someone cares about them. They need to feel like um, someone appreciates that this is maybe hard or complicated to make a, a lifestyle change. And um, yeah, shame is is not where we want to go. And you know, working in this field more and more, I you know just can't tell you how many times someone who's um, relatively heavier, I said like, listen, like I know you don't have to tell me. It's it's you can't tell me anything I don't already know. Yeah. Um, and like, so, if just there was some quick diet that would change my body, don't you think I would have found it by now? Like, yeah. do you think that this is a simple, you know, quote unquote problem to solve? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It is so rather than like focusing on the problem, focus on solutions. Which for me as a journalist, that was always my approach. I don't want to just you know write about the problems. Let's figure out what the solutions are. It it's kind of helping people holistically right? Rather than looking for a silver bullet or talking about here's a solution A, B, or C. It's a matter of like really looking at like the full scope of somebody, right? And and, yeah. and, and how they're going to be able to enjoy success and be happy, be happy, right? Right. right. <laughs> be happy. I mean, but that's why when I was working on the body image books, it the focus is of course body image, but as I was working on them and focus grouping the material with the age of the reader, you know, the readership I was trying to to cater to, I realized there's like all these other things I have to really talk about. Mm -hmm. Like this is really part of a much bigger story. And so that's why I include discussion of mental health in general, physical mm -hmm. health issues in general, physical activity, eating behaviors. You know, it's you can't just say like, oh, feel good in your skin, mm -hmm. right? Which is sort of like, ultimately, as a body image scientist, what we want people to achieve, feel good yeah. in your skin. Well, how yeah. are you going to do that if you don't tackle these other pieces of what it means to well, be a person, essentially? Yeah. yeah, what I love about your books is there's, there's like just enough of like a dash of humor in there. <laughs> it's so clear that in, in writing these books that it was coming from such a place of compassion. And that's why like my daughters love the books and that's why they're so accessible. And that's, that's why like, it isn't a matter of, Oh God, we need to, you know, we need to read the, the, the book's body image <laughs> book again. It's, you know, it's, it's something that we look forward to. All right. I love the books. Can't wait to talk about them more, but first I got to take a moment here and say some words about some sponsors of 40,000 steps radio. I learned in rehab at Gateway Foundation that being an alcoholic didn't make me a bad person. It made me a sick person and no different than someone with cancer or diabetes. And during my time at Gateway, I started finally getting healthy again. Folks, we're living through stressful, unprecedented times and the temptation to turn to alcohol and drugs to cope with that stress and anxiety, it's stronger now than ever before. Stop using now before it's too late. Gateway Foundation is here for you and your family with life-saving inpatient, as well as virtual programs, so you can access the help you need from the privacy of your home. Don't wait to get the help you or a loved one needs. Most insurance plans are accepted. Call Gateway Foundation now at 877-505-HOPE. That's 877-505-4673 to schedule a free confidential consultation or you can visit gatewayfoundation.org and get the help that you need today. You know I'm an anxious person. Well, 
I'm really worried about my good friend, Mother Earth. And that's why I love Bamboo Works. Bamboo Works creates stylish, sustainably made, high quality sports apparel. Headbands, wristbands, gaiters, beanies, even performance masks. The wristbands, they've got this pocket where you can put your ID or frozen gel packs. Bamboo Works does more than athletic apparel. You gotta check out their amazing trucker hat. It's got that rubber enclosure. So if you're like me and you like to flip the cap around, it's not gonna leave that annoying dent in your forehead. Bamboo Works sources its product materials in eco-friendly, sustainable manner. This goes beyond the apparel. They're focused on sustainability when it comes to production and their packaging. We're all trying to do our part to take care of the planet, but shouldn't we look good doing it? That's where Bamboo Works comes in. Visit BambooWorks.com, that's B-A-M-B-U-W-E-R-X.com to learn more, or head to 40,000steps.com to check out Bamboo Works' exclusive line of 40,000 Steps gear. Bamboo Works, skin-friendly, earth-safe, it's apparel for today's active lifestyle. Folks, if you or someone you love might have an issue with drinking, drugs, mental illness, or anger management, it's time to get in touch with my friends at DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers here in Northern Illinois. It's time to set up an assessment. You've got nothing to lose. Depending on your situation, the assessment could be free. My friend Ron Parch and his team use their 25 years of experience to build an individualized treatment plan that's confidential and effective. They approach people in distress with respect, and I cannot stress enough how important that is to feel respected when you're going through something. DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers has offices in Sycamore, Plano, and Crystal Lake. Check out DUISycamore.com or call 815-895-9000 and set up an evaluation today. Write this down, folks. Call 815-895-9000, visit DUISycamore.com, or you can email duibhs at gmail.com. And back to our conversation with Dr. Charlotte Marquis. You know, when you talk about support, um, to kind of backtrack a little bit. So for 10-year-old Charlotte, you know, you're, you're confronted with being told you don't have a dancer's body. You know, what was what was your journey like from there? Well, you know, what was your support like? What was your response? Did you did you tell somebody? How, how did things play out from there? Um, I mean, I wouldn't say they played out particularly well. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I kept dancing. I think I was, like I said, you know, kind of a serious kid anyways. I've, I've always been kind of an anxious person, which, you know, with with enough life experience I've come to, to cope with. But I think as a kid, it was just hard. And, um, and it definitely affected the trajectory of my own eating habits as I became a teenager. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't really think that there was a lot of talk, at least not in sort of my demographic in, you know, the 1980s and uh, early 90s uh, about mental health. So it was just, you know, you just, as a kid, you'd go to school, you do well in school, you come home or you do your activities. I don't remember ever talking to my parents about any of this, mm-hmm. really. And not that they were, you know, like terrible parents or anything. I just think it was very much a different Same. era. Same. Absolutely. You know? 
Absolutely. You know, it's yeah. it it the same thing here. And because I couldn't, because I couldn't figure out what I was going through, I, I couldn't even figure out how to say it out loud to them. Right. Yeah. No, of course. Like we, we just didn't have these conversations, mm -hmm. I think, uh, or at least not like kind of, you know, your average people, I don't know, maybe in certain social classes, people had therapists on retainer, but um, <laughs> that was not like, you know, a, a normative thing. And that that's an area where we still have so much ground to make up. I know that you mentioned that we need more dietitians. We need we still need more counselors. Like we, we're figuring, oh we're figuring out a lot of this stuff, and it's like, okay, let's get more counselors in schools. We're all game for that. And it's like we don't have any counselors. I know, and it's terrible right now. I'm sure you've read all the reports right now. You know, I mean, when we're talking about 25% of adolescents experiencing basically mental illness mm -hmm. um, across the pandemic when we're talking about, we need to start screening for anxiety at eight years old. Is, and then you know, what? Recent suggestion, you know, but right, you're right. Screening is a good first step, but yeah. then when we find kids who are anxious then where do we get them help? Right, right. I'm holding out hope that, you know, discussions like this and discussions that are ongoing is going to, because it's funny, like, Maybe it's because of the circle that I run in and my echo chamber that I feel like every other youngish person compared to me, you know, people in their 20s, people who are attending Northern Illinois University, I feel like every other person I talk to is going into psychology. And I'm like, yes, we need to keep that momentum going. I think such a huge part of doing that or getting, uh, getting you know, youngsters who are going into clinical psychology, getting them into a job where they can have the most impact, like in a school district, like we need to figure out how to incentivize and pay these folks a living wage, right? It would help. <laughs> it sure would. I mean, make it appealing on some level because it's crazy hard work. What, what kept you or what got you down that track? And then what kept you on that track? Was it, was it your personal passion and your mission while you hung with it? I mean, you know, I don't practice clinically now. So, um, but you studied it and you, and you got your yeah. degree in it. Like a lot of right. these, a lot of these kids are going to bail on it because, you know, somebody's going to tell them, look, you, you're not going to be able to make much money. Um, right. But you, you finished your degree. I finished. Yeah. I finished my PhD and, um, and, you know, I, cho I chose a more research path. I thought that was at the time a better fit for me. Mm -hmm. um, now when I, hear all these statistics about kids suffering. I wish I was out in the world practicing because I, I think there are people needed. Mm -hmm. Another real barrier though, is just the, the crazy number of training hours required right, um, in right. terms of internships. And I mean, that training is so important, of course, for clinicians, but it's usually unpaid. And that's a, that's a hard, pill to swallow for a lot of people. Yeah. As your student debt is piling up and you're trying to make ends meet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and I, and I, I saw like a, you know, a, 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 and I could hear a pang of regret in your voice for not going into counseling, but th those books that you've created, I mean, by through those books, you are a counselor of sorts to tens of thousands of children and their parents. So to me, that 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 is absolutely commendable and amazing. Well, that's generous of you to say. I hope so, certainly. And, you know, I think that I'm sure you feel the same way. We have to 
do what we think that we can do best, right? That um, not everyone is meant to be a counselor, not everyone's meant to be a teacher, there are, you know, not everyone's meant to be a doctor, whatever it may be, right? That we we should try to use the the skills we have to to our to the best we can. But yeah. yeah. And, and, and everything that you've published as well, it's all like, it's all pulling on the rope, like all, all the different ways that you have touched the field. At what point did you decide, or were you informed by kind of by the data <laughs> that, that it was time to create a book for boys? And naturally, I can't just ask you an answer and get the hell out of the way. I have to share my story a little bit because you could probably tell <laughs> I do not have a botter's a bodybuilder's body. I'm, I'm, I'm a very, <laughs> most sl- people don't. <laughs> right. Right. But I'm very slight. I have a very like, you know, small frame. And as a kid in high school, like I would go to the beach with my buddies and I would never take off my shirt. Uh, because you know, I, I felt so embarrassed about my body. So as I'm, as I'm reading this book, I'm like, goodness gracious, if you only could have put this book in my hands, you know, when I was 10 or 11 years old, when I was going through that really formative period of my life. So was it kind of the data? Was it anecdotal? What led you to do the boys book? I mean, to be perfectly honest, when I proposed the girls book, Mm -hmm. I got so lucky, I will forever be grateful that it fell into the hands of my editor, Sarah Marsh. And she just really liked it. She understood what I was trying to do. And you know what it's like when you have a creative vision, right? It's so hard sometimes when you're not sure if someone's going to get it. So, you know, I connect with this other woman and she gets it. And right away, she says, though, as we're negotiating a contract for this book, you know, I understand why you want to write this just for girls. I get it. But just so you know, I have boys and they need a book, too. Mm. And of course, on a professional academic level, I knew that. Mm -hmm. But there was such a gift given in that right away. I had permission to pursue that project. Right. So I had not the the girls book hadn't come out yet. Mm-hmm. I mean they they came out actually, you know, the the girls book came out in September of 2020. This one came out in April of 2022. So less than 2 years apart and there's a year of production time on these books because of the illustration and design and pandemic delays all this. So I submitted the girls book to my editor before they had even turned it around with editorial feedback, I had written the, started writing the proposal for the boys book. Mm-hmm. And I was dead set that like, I was going to do this next one as fast as possible. If they still gave me the green light, which they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, then as I dug into it more and more, and as I interviewed boys and as I spent more time with the data, it was like, how could, how could we have ever thought this wasn't needed? Right. Right. I mean, it was, it became, I don't know. I think some of it was talking, to, talking to the boys. Yeah. That you know, sometimes the stories, it's like, you know, picture paints a thousand words, right? It's, it's the data is compelling, but then you hear these kids who say things not different entirely from what you said, right? Like I never want to take my shirt off at the pool or, I have a hairy chest and 
someone told me that was gross when I was a teenager. And, you know, I don't know what to do with that now. Like, it just seems like so much maintenance if I don't have a hair desk, right? Yeah. Just these, these sorts of insecurities that felt really familiar to me when I talked with girls because I was a girl and now I'm a woman. So like they, they felt so familiar. And then when I heard boys saying things that were on the one hand different, but on the other hand, the same. Yeah. Well, and no. the other, I just have to drop this in there. Like the other characteristic that, that I had in terms of like something that's abnormal is I've always had a, a little bit of man boobs going on. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's my DNA. You know, it's, I come from a long line of men with, with, with man boobs. There's absolutely nothing that I could do about it. Uh, speaking to, speaking to your point before, when you said, you know, why, why aren't we having these conversations? You definitely answered that conversation in the book or th that you answered that question in the book and that it's like, we don't talk about it with boys because boys don't talk about these things. Right. Which again, goes back to conversations about mental health. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something I worry about with my own kids. I have a teenage son. I have a teenage daughter. My teenage daughter talks to me about all kinds of things mm. and it's like pulling teeth sometimes to get my son to say anything. How old and, are they? Uh, they are 16 and almost 15. And is, so. is, is your boy the younger one? No, he's the older one. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. 16. 16. Yeah. Just got his driver's license. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's, it's crazy. And I'm as a, as a mother, I feel already like, you know, what is happening here? <laughs> this, this man child now is so much bigger than me. <laughs> he can drive now. In theory, he may go to college in a couple of years. You know, I mean, it's just older people used to always tell me it goes so fast mm -hmm. when you have kids. And I remember when they were, you know, all through elementary school, as a busy working mom kind of thinking like, well, it better go fast. Cause this is really hard. <laughs> I don't know. Right. <laughs> like, like that doesn't sound like such a terrible thing to me. And yet like every day, you know what they say? It's like the, the days are long, the years are fast. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's like, it just really starts to accelerate. Yeah. And, um, there's so much, I feel like I want to say to my own kids and, and they are who I think about a lot when I'm writing these books, That's awesome. because it's like, if I could put everything in a book and, and they would actually read every word of it, this is like, you know, this is all the territory I want to cover. This is the way I want to say it to them, mm -hmm. not with judgment, not with like, there's always a right or a wrong answer even, but like you say, with as much compassion as, as I truly feel and with, the scientific information, but also some antidote to normalize the conversation to make them feel like, hey, it's okay if you are concerned about some of this. Yeah. So the pandemic, you know, gave us a lot of time to get to know our children so much better. <laughs> so it had to have been a wild couple of years. But I mean, you were probably noticing it like right around the time that your children became teenagers, that it was e easier to have those conversations with your daughter than with your son i guess the two-part question here like what does it do for you as a mother to know that the work that you've done the research the research that you've done has made those conversations easier with your daughter a certain amount of street cred right 
<laughs> but but then with your son, it's like, oh my gosh, mom, I don't I don't want to talk about your job anymore. <laughs> it's yeah, gotta, it's got to be kind of polarizing, right? I mean, I think you know, and and you probably feel or will feel something similar, right? As someone who talks to all kinds of experts about mental health issues, mm -hmm. that on the one hand, I like to think I have some street cred with my own children. On the other hand, your kids are sometimes the last, you know, the last people they want to talk to about some of their inner thoughts is actually their parents. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, increasingly, they want to talk to their friends about those things or, um, you know, maybe even another trusted adult. And, and I think that's okay. I mean, it can, it can feel unfortunate at times, but, you know, I think that's developmentally really normal for kids to, to want to differentiate from their parents and feel independent of their parents. Um, and, you know, I think, I don't know, you know, sometimes my, my kids seem interested in my work and sometimes just like every kid, they seem completely, right. you know, bored by it. Or, you know, if I say, can I mention your name or can I do whatever? And it's really, if it's like in writing, right. For a publication, mm -hmm. sometimes they're like, no, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> I respect that. You know, I try to, I try to, to, to check with them about these things. If it's, in writing or something. How, how do you or how have you broken through some of that with with your son? And I, I guess in terms of uh, and, and what is it like when, when you've seen like evidence of of him listening and and not maybe maybe having more tools to deal with with, with some of this stuff, which. I know that it probably it's hard for you to notice that on account of the fact that he's always been your son and it's and it you yeah. know you've always known him but but you've also interviewed a ton of kids so I mean how uh, I, I guess getting back to the original question like what what was the best way for you to connect with your son and 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 to give him to give him the opportunities to avoid some of these struggles? I mean, I can only hope I've given him the opportunity to avoid some of these struggles. You know, I think. Um, I'm not entirely different from every parent and that we do our best and then we hope for the best because we can't control what happens to our kids or who they become. And, you know, I, I have found that it can be strategic to, with boys or girls really, to, to bring things up, you know, when they're stuck with you in the car. That's my favorite trick, really. Because um, I can't go anywhere. Captive uh, audience. <laughs> you, I mean, you make sure they don't have an AirPod in one ear. Yeah. Which sometimes they do. But, you know, or in, in situations like that, where it's like, we're driving somewhere. It's not like a lecture. It's like, I'm just wondering about this. Is yeah. this okay? You know, I, I ask them about, what they they learn in their health classes at school mm -hmm. a lot as an entree because I I often frankly don't agree with all of it or think that it's kind of outdated and right. they seem to appreciate that you know if I can if I can um, 
I don't know, outsmart something that they've been told by another grown up, perhaps that it, maybe that's the hook. I don't know. It's not, <laughs> I'm trying to undermine their teachers. Of course. I just, you know, I'm passionate yeah, about then, health then, issues. So then they go back to school and they completely rule out everything else they learn. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, I guess one needs to take great care and how you approach some of this. Sure. But, sure. You know, I think a lot of it has to do with just asking questions and then trying to be a good listener. Yeah. And I'm a person who I do have a lot to say. It's hard for me sometimes to bite my tongue and just listen and wait. Um, and it's something I've really tried to practice and get better at, and I'm probably still not great at it, but I do think that, you know, everything I've read, everything I've experienced is that you're going to get much farther when you just ask questions and then see what happens because, you know, we're all so tempted, I think, to say like, well, when I was a kid and it's probably just like the quickest way to end a productive conversation. Mm -hmm. How do I keep my kids off social media? Where are we at on that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, I'm not completely anti-social media. I, and it's yeah, kind I, of what I do. I, I'm sort of kidding, but sort of not. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, I do. I do. I think that there's value in delaying. And I would say, you know, there's value in, in delaying just access to a phone. Mm -hmm. A phone is really qualitatively different than a computer and that kids have them on them all the time. Right. And at some point, and I, I can't say exactly when that is for any family, but I think at some point you want your kid to have that phone mm -hmm. because of just the dynamics of our lives. At some point, it was like, I wanted my kids to be able to be home alone. We don't even have a house line. Um, you know, I, I had to work. I felt better if I could reach them. I wanted them to have a phone. Right. Or they're doing activities. They're going to call you when it's over. You know, it just, it becomes easier for them, essentially, to have a phone. Um, but then once I have that phone, that's when you have to really, I think, be strategic about what social media platforms I guess you will allow. And I mean, I know we went through this with my daughter in particular. There were a couple of times, you know, she would download, I think it was, I don't know if it was Instagram or Snapchat at the time. She would download it, but she knew she wasn't allowed. So she would download it and use it and erase it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then so, we get... I mean, there are workarounds. These kids know technology oh, better than us. Totally. And then we get into the area of policing and what, you know, how much is overbearing. Yeah. Like we, we, we don't want to like wand them <laughs> like they're passing through security when they get home. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think you have to be careful because mm -hmm. social media provides ways for kids to connect and communicate. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, some of us used to spend hours on the phone when we were younger. <laughs> right, right. You right. know, and then we'd have call waiting and we'd like switch between people even. Yeah, that was weird, right? And, and then we right. had and then we had dial-up internet and using like AOL AIM and then we'd be like, mom, dad, get off the phone. I'm trying to chat on AIM. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, our parents weren't policing any of that. Right, it's true. You know, so I do think that we have to let them have some space to develop their relationships to become who they're going to become and, and and to trust them and to also let them know if something's not going right they should come to us but you know in talking with so many kids these last few years in particular i'm amazed what kids know and have figured out mm -hmm. and 
I don't know how to quantify it. I, I don't know that anyone's doing this kind of research, but I hope someone does because I feel like kids are smarter now. They are much more aware of the world around them um, and they have access to so much more information, which of course is not always a good thing. Yeah. Um, you know, but even just, God, I forget which election it was that my kids were talking to me about candidates and, you know, they were like 12 or something, one of them. And I thought like, I didn't even know like anything yeah. about politics at 12. I didn't right. care. That's pretty cool, yeah. though, that they're engaged with the political process. Yeah. I mean, when kids start to get more access to this information, it's not just that they're getting bad information. I mean, they're getting that, too. But <laughs> but they're getting, you know, just, I don't know. I, I'm just shocked. You know, sometimes I'll I'll say something. Do you see, you know, when when the war in Ukraine started, did you did you see what's going on in Ukraine? Oh yeah, you know, and they can like talk to me about it. They're not getting a lot of that at school. You and I should definitely do this again sometime and do an entire episode on misinformation. But that's... oh, I love that. That's so much fun. <laughs> right, yes. right. Oh yes, I can come up with all sorts of examples. Let's do it. Yeah, we could do an episode where we're just perpetually thumbing the bruise of misinformation. Oh yes. But we, you know, I've I've, I've been so excited to talk about the books with you. Uh, so ref uh, let's reflect for a moment on 10 year old Charlotte being told that she doesn't have a dancer's body. Sorry. I keep going back there because I love a good origin story. Like I said, but I also love, for instance, with my story and with so many folks I talk to, like we share the war stories. We talk about what it's like to be an addiction, what it's like to wrestle with eating disorders and all of these dark times of our life. However, ultimately the goal is to flip it on its head and look at, oh my gosh, look at where I am today. Look at how well I'm living my life. Look at what I've accomplished. So to be able to hold that book in your hands and see what you've created. I mean, what, what, what does that mean to you? I mean, it's, you know, it's been a long time that I've been um, almost singularly focused on these issues. And so, yeah, it does. It's it's why I guess I just don't get tired of it. You know, it's I've been I've been as a professional, as an adult studying these issues for 25 years now, believe it or not. And it doesn't get tired to me because there's just a lot of people suffering, right? There's a lot of people whose stories are so similar to mine, like I said in the beginning, right? I think that there's hardly a kid I talk to that hasn't had some moment where they were made to feel less than or like there was something wrong with them. And it wasn't necessarily because someone was, you know, mean-spirited or ill-intentioned. They just... It's part of our lexicon. They said the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong person. And yet those moments can sometimes put you on this whole trajectory. And, um, and so, yeah, I guess that's why, you know, you keep chugging along, right? You think mm -hmm. I don't want people to have that same experience or I want them to deal with it better when they do mm -hmm. maybe avoiding it is, is almost, you know, pointless. I'm going to add one more layer to this in that I'm no saint. We, I think on some level, we've all made a comment, you know, that it might not have been what we intended. It might've been off the cuff. It might've been a joke. I mean, I can tell you that I personally 
have, you know, passed judgment on somebody because I, because of your long ingrained thought processes. Of, oh, of course. Yeah. So yeah. in what you're doing though, not only are you helping folks who are in it, but also creating an opportunity for somebody like me to remind myself, wait, I need to be more careful with my words as well and my preconceived notions. So I, I think that there there are layers of, of what your books are accomplishing in that in that way. Well, I can only hope, you know, I mean, I think that's that's the goal. And I mean, if it were up to me, every family would get a book and every parent would sit down with their kid and at least get through part of it, because I do think that there's a lot that us adults um, need to reframe, need to rethink a lot of the way we were brought up in terms of how we talk and think about bodies and food and activity and maybe even health. Um, it's frankly not accurate, not not evidence-based yeah. and or at least oversimplified. And so, you know, how can we do better in communicating about these issues? So the next generation, you know, knows where to go for support when they need it or um knows that they're not alone well thank you so much for uh for all that you do and for joining me i hope you had as much fun as i did yeah this was great i hope we do get to talk again i think there's uh so many things that we share in terms of our perspective about these issues and i'm really um glad for the work that you're doing as well and i hope that we can you know, even if you just help one or two people, I always think that's something. That's that right. That's right. So let's meet back here once uh, once you're ready with the next book. How's that sound? That sounds great. All right. Have a great day. And we'll talk soon. All right. Sounds great. All Take right. care. You too. Bye. Bye. All right, gang, order the books. There's the Body Image Book for Girls. And for your little guys, there's Being You, the Body Image Book for Boys. Wonderful books, great information, colorful, engaging, perfect for children of all ages. I enjoyed them. I learned stuff from them too. Thank you so much to Dr. Markey for joining me in this episode. Thank you to all of you for being here. Please subscribe to the podcast because then every time that another episode drops on Tuesday, you'll be like, holy shit, what awesome human being does he have on this week? I can't wait to hear their story. Also, please rate and review the podcast so that it gets in front of more people, so it gets into more ears, so we can keep building this beautiful community that we're creating together. Until next time, folks, remember that if it feels like things are falling apart outside this space, right here, we are always coming together. Take care of yourself. Be excellent to each other. Peace. We out.